This sermon, An Unlikely Candidate, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, March 27, 2022, at Sovereign Grace Church. Open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we are preaching through the book of Acts, and this morning, uh, we have the privilege of being in chapter 9. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9, and if you are not familiar with these verses, as I read somewhere this week, uh, apart from the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no greater moment in redemptive history than what we see happening in these verses. So would you stand with me? Acts 9, verse 1. Luke continues the story of the early church. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them Bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are building your church. Lord, this morning, we pray your kingdom come in the hearts of the people you have gathered here this morning. Lord, we pray that you build this church this morning, not for our renown, not for our glory, but for your renown and glory. Lord, may this time of looking into your word bear fruit that helps us to live and tell of the one who has saved us, the very same one that Saul encountered on the road to Damascus. Lord, remind us freshly that all we have is from you this morning. Remind us freshly through this text that we owe our lives to you, for you are a God of undeserved mercy and undeserved grace. You poured your love into our hearts, 
And indeed, that is how and why we are here. So have your way in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you heard this story before, so bear with me. Uh, But a number of years ago, I was sitting in my office, and I got a phone call. And on the other end was a gentleman who simply asked, is this Derek? I said, it is. And then he immediately followed that question up with, is this Derek Overstreet? I said, yep. And then he asked, is this Derek Overstreet who worked at Vandegreen Lumber? It's my very first job out of high school. I said, yes. And then he asked this, is this Derek Overstreet the pastor? And I said, who is this? You tell me who you are. It was a gentleman that I worked with for a number of years, right out of high school. He had heard from my brother who had wandered in to pick up some building supplies. And this gentleman just happened to ask, hey, what's your brother up to nowadays? It had been 20 years since I had been living in Linden, Washington, where I'm from. And he said, oh, he's a pastor down in Tucson. And this gentleman laughed and said, what? (laughs) He said, I'll believe it when I hear it from him. And so he called me. (laughs) He called me. You see, in his mind, the guy who lived to party and was on the work release program at the ripe young age of 19, I was an unlikely candidate in his mind to be a pastor, no less to be living for Jesus. And let's just get it straight right now. Such is the mercy and the power of God to save sinners. Amen? Amen. But he couldn't believe it. He had to hear it from me. I won't believe it. I can't imagine Derek as you have just described him to me. We know the last couple weeks, we've had a front row seat in Acts to the salvation of unlikely candidates, haven't we? Samaritans, ritually unclean people like an Ethiopian eunuch who no doubt is taking the gospel home to Africa where more Gentiles are probably being saved. The gospel has been breaking through barriers in unique ways in these last few chapters. And this morning, we we look in on the conversion of what I would submit would be the most unlikely of them all, the most unlikely candidate for salvation in all of Scripture. You know him as the Apostle Paul. Remember in chapter 7, verse 58, we were introduced to Saul, who will be called Paul in chapter 13, verse 9, As he stood by, you remember what he was doing? He was watching and approving Stephen's stoning. He was celebrating the murder. 
of a faithful deacon who was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 8, verse 1, we learn that, that that event, that day, kicked off a great persecution against the church that scattered the believers in all directions. Of course, as difficult as those times one can only imagine were for the church, their suffering, their suffering we know was God's plan. His ways aren't our ways, remember? Their suffering was God's plan according to the promise of Jesus in chapter one, verse eight, to take the gospel outside the walls of Jerusalem and indeed to the ends of the earth. But since that day, since that day in chapter eight, verse one, Paul has grown more militant, more violent, and more resolved to destroy the church. What, we, what was started out in chapter 8 as a house-to-house roundup in Jerusalem has grown, as we will see, to a city-to-city crusade of terror. In fact, did you notice in the opening verses of Paul's conversion, he makes it very clear. We, we get to this point in Saul's life, and it's, it's clear. He was not a seeker. He was not considering Christianity. Saul, Saul wasn't warming up to the church. He wasn't feeling any conviction or condemnation for the lives that he was destroying. Notice what Luke says in verse 1. But Saul still, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues, make me legal, at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was just a reference early on in the church, the way, those who believed that Jesus was the way, those who lived life the way Jesus discipled them, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Did you notice the word that Luke uses there for breathing? He says that he, was, he breathed murderous Threats. That, that word breathing denotes more than just verbal utterances. He wasn't just making threats to people. The, the idea of this word is that Saul lived and breathed hatred and violence against the disciples. It's what got him up in the morning to hunt down those who loved Jesus. What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? This is what got Saul out of bed in the morning. Who will I wreck today? Who will I make pay for following Jesus today? In the words of John Calvin, Saul was an untamed beast who was a rabid, bloodthirsty enemy of the church. And the source of his resolve, we can't lose sight of this, the source of Saul's resolve was that he thought he was doing the work of God. This was theological for Saul. This just wasn't 
This was his calling from the Lord in his mind. If for no other reason, if you're familiar with Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it says, any man hanged on a tree was cursed by God. So Saul got up in the morning and said, listen, anyone who follows this phony Messiah, Jesus, who, by the way, was hung on a tree, who died a cursed death, Deuteronomy 20, the law is clear. Anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And so anyone who would preach, who would believe and tell others that Jesus is the Messiah, well, they are blasphemous heretics and they must pay to the utmost. Ironically, if you're familiar with Galatians 3.13, this same man, Saul, now Paul, would celebrate Jesus as a cursed man hanging on a tree. When he wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I think, I think, I think his mission, both missions hung on this. I will hunt you down if you believe a man cursed by God is the Messiah. And what we're going to learn after today's text is he turned around and said, you must believe that a man cursed by God was cursed for you. It's insane. But for now, here in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, Saul believed his murderous crusade was for was the work of God, and he had the authority of the high priest. He had modern-day extradition papers in his hands. Who could stop him? Who could stop him? Here's the point in these first two verses I want us to get. Saul was the most unlikely candidate for the love of God. He was the most unlikely candidate for gospel conversion. You and I, and as we'll see in the next section, you and I would have ran from him. We wouldn't have evangelized him. And then this happened. Look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, his way to do what? Verse 2. His way to bind Christians and take them to Jerusalem. He approached Damascus, and suddenly, I love that word, it's so theological, suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, probably off his horse, doesn't actually say that, I think we can assume that, falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is an ambush. It's a divine ambush. 
Saul is on the last leg of what was probably about a 170-mile trip. That's a long ways in the first century. He has extradition orders in hand. He is single-minded in his mission. Find, arrest, and punish Christian. And Luke's, and this is Luke's word, suddenly, without warning, the most unlikely thing happens. Saul the apprehender is apprehended by none other than the very one he's been trying to stamp out. Now, now that Jesus has Saul's attention, I want to look at three things here that he, I want us to look at this intense Q&A. There's three things that happen here. First, did you notice in verse 4, Jesus questions Saul. Saul, Saul. And you read your Bible and you, you get that, that, that and somebody is addressed repetitively like that. It's like, listen up, this is important. Why are you persecuting me? The emphatic in the original language, the emphatic is, is with the me. In fact, a, a literal translation is, why me? Are you persecuting? The emphasis here is not on the persecution, it's on the me. Why me are you persecuting? Do you remember what Jesus taught his disciples? If they receive you, they receive me. If they reject you, they reject me. Such is the union between Christ and his people. And we see that here in the Savior's question. Why are you persecuting me? No doubt Saul probably thought, me? Well, first of all, I don't even know who me is, and I'm not doing anything to you. I've never even met you. But what you do to Jesus, what you do to Jesus' people, you do to Jesus. This, just try and connect some dots here. I think that we underestimate this, this moment on the road to Damascus, how many ways it defined Paul's ministry, the things that he emphasized. And one of those, one of those gospel realities that, that Paul emphasized was one's union with Christ. In fact, this theological reality that, that Jesus says, it, it became a calling card of Paul's gospel ministry, didn't it? No doubt it was here that, that this reality, that, 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 that to believe, to belong to Christ is to be one with Christ, that it was burned on his, into his mind and onto his Heart, and it's a gospel reality. Our union with Christ should be burned into our souls as well. Because there are fewer things 
there are fewer things that function to strengthen our faith and our resolve in times of trial with those sins that we struggle with. And very applicable here, those moments we may be tempted to criticize or be divisive in the church. There are fewer things that weigh in on those moments than our union with Jesus Christ. Well, we heard in the prophetic word this morning, didn't we? That sense of he is with you. I thought about that you are never apart from your Savior. He sent his spirit. He is in you and you are in him and there's never a moment that that is not true if you are a Christian. So let that word this morning be salve to your soul. Let it speak to your thoughts. Let it inform your feelings. Whatever you may be going through, we learn in Saul's own conversion that the union that the believer has with Jesus is real and unbreakable. In fact, you want a great Bible study? Do it on the union of Christ. Do it on the believer's union in Jesus Christ. What a great Bible study that would be. Looking for something in community group to do? Do a study on that. Men's groups, women's groups, do a personal study. Your union in Jesus Christ. Now, notice Saul's response. Verse five, who are you, Lord? Blinded by divine light, knocked to the ground by divine power, addressed by the divine voice from heaven. I can only imagine Saul's voice must have been cracking a little. As he cried out, who are you? And here's what I love about this moment. You notice something here. Jesus called Saul by name. Saul had to ask Jesus, who are you? You see, Jesus knew Saul before Saul knew Jesus. It's the same with us. If you know Christ this morning, before you knew him, he knew you. Before you loved him, he set his divine affections on you. Like Paul here, you didn't see your need for Jesus. You were just going on with your hell-bent race, just, just as I was. Oblivious, indifferent to the cost. You had no affections for Jesus. Read Romans 3. None of us did. But then read Ephesians 1 and learn that before the foundations of the world, Jesus knew you. He set his affections upon you. And he marched to the cross. Can't wait for Easter week. The Sunday before Easter, we're going to look at the garden where Jesus began to feel the weight of your sin. Good Friday, come. We're going to look at the crucifixion and come on Sunday, the resurrection. He had you in mind. You didn't even know it. That's amazing grace. So 
So Jesus asks Saul a question. Then notice what he does next. He, he reveals himself to Saul. And he reveals himself to Saul with three simple words that Saul would never forget. Look at the end of verse 5. I am Jesus. Jesus. I thought Jesus was dead. Uh, one can only imagine. Maybe, maybe Saul immediately thought of Stephen's sermon and the stoning that he sat by and celebrated, stood by and celebrated. Whatever went through his mind, it's a wonder Saul didn't have a massive heart attack here. I think God preserved him. Just read the rest of the New Testament, right? There's your answer. I am Jesus. Now, there's no explicit conversion language in this text. Did you notice that? There's no explicit conversion language in the text. Luke doesn't say, and in that moment, Saul believed in Jesus. But the following verses, particularly verse 17 and 18, where we see that, that, that Paul is filled with the Spirit, He's baptized, and obviously the chapters following, including Paul telling his own testimony in chapter 26 to King Agrippa, he goes back to this moment. Obviously, the letters that he wrote makes it clear what happened in this moment. And you'll notice what Luke does focus on it's interesting. He focuses on the des- describing Saul, 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 Saul's physical step. Did you notice that? He really gives us a helpful pic- Really, And in doing that, he really gives us a helpful picture of what happens spiritually in conversion. I mean, in these verses, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of Christ, this, Saul was reduced to nothing. Verse 8 says that Saul went blind and had to be led around by by his men. Take his hand. Come here, over here. In verse 9, it says that Saul couldn't eat or drink for three days. In verses 10 through 19, we learn that Saul had to be cared for by a disciple named Ananias. Ironically, the very kind of person he was hunting down. He was now in the hands of. He was now at the mercy of. Justin Holcomb says, just as Paul had shattered the lives of many of God's people, God shattered Paul's pride and self-sufficiency, forcing him to seek as a blind supplicant the mercy of the people he hated. This mighty man saw papers in his hands, army at his disposal, is suddenly reduced to nothing. As I thought about this, I thought about Isaiah 6. You familiar with that? That moment when a man, a righteous man no less, he gets a glimpse of the holiness of God. He gets a picture 
of God in heaven seated at his throne. And this was a righteous man. This wasn't Saul. And do you remember his response? He was undone. Suddenly, suddenly, his righteousness meant nothing. Suddenly, I am a man of unclean lips. That's a statement about his entire being. And in the presence of God, he's so undone that he pronounces a woe upon himself, a judgment. That's what a woe is. Woe is me. This is, what, this is what happens in our hearts. It might not be that dramatic. It might not be as we see here with Saul, but, but the physical here represents a spiritual reality. Everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus must go through. I can remember my own conversion. It wasn't the road to Damascus. It was, it, it was the road of McClintock in Phoenix. And I was a proud, I can't even find the words. I was an unlikely candidate to ever bow my heart to the Lord. And I can remember in a fit of anger at my wife driving to that watering hole. And in that moment, suddenly, there were no flashing lights. I didn't hear the audible voice of God. I didn't go blind. Nobody had to take me around by the hand. But in that moment, in that moment, I knew who Jesus was. I wasn't looking for it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't even know I needed him. And he saved me by his grace. Only when we see our desperate need. Remember that as you are out there talking to unbelievers. Many of them don't see their need. They know something's off. They don't see their need, though. They can take care of their need, right? They can make things right if they want to. Until we, only when we see our desperate need and absolute inability. Will we cry out for the mercy and grace of Jesus? See, here's really the, here's the truth. Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, aren't we all unlikely candidates? Aren't we all just like Saul? Unlikely candidates for God's saving grace and redemptive purposes? Chances are, when you were saved, whether it was dramatic or not, chances are you probably weren't hunting down other Christians in your neighborhood. Chances are you didn't see lightning or hear the audible voice of God or, or have an intense Q&A with Christ in your backyard. If you did, I'd love to hear about it. 
But do you know what makes your conversion just as unlikely and dare I say radical as Paul's? Listen to this, verses. Colossians 1.21, and you, yes, you, teenager who's grown up in the church. Yes, you, adult who, as long as you remember, you've always been saved. You once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Colossians, actually, I don't think that's Colossians 3. I think that's Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature, by virtue of being conceived in your mother's womb. (laughs) Like were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, not when we were likely candidates, and actually, if you really think about it, our sin makes us a very likely candidate, But when we were still sinners, he goes on to say, when we were yet enemies, God saved us. That that was me. That was you. That may still be you. But praise be to God who, who devised the most unlikely solution. And we find it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says... He, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So that we might know the righteousness of God. God himself came down from heaven. The offended paid for the offense. And the offender no longer experiences the wrath of God, but only the grace and mercy of God. None of us deserve that. We are all unlikely candidates. If you're not a Christian, whatever you think you need, This is what you need right now more than anything else. Jesus. Who are you, Lord? He's here. And listen to his voice in your heart, calling you to repent of your sin and to believe in his death on the cross that paid for you. Repent of your sin and believe in the great sin bearer and be saved. If you are a Christian, then just allow what we're seeing in these verses to freshly amaze you once 
again. If there's any applications, there you go. Leave here being freshly amazed that though your sin is great, the mercy of God is greater. And you didn't deserve it. Finally, he commissioned Saul. Notice verse 6. He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. Now, all I want to say here is that God saved Saul for a specific purpose. And we will look at, at Paul's mission in the next section. But in a nutshell, as I read this, I thought, wow, the enemy has become the servant. The great persecutor has become the gospel preacher. All by the grace of God. And all in the plan of God. But right now, here's the application question for us all. Who is the unlikely candidate God has put in your life? Is there someone you haven't and you won't? Share the gospel with. Not because of fear. Not because they're really smart and you're afraid you're not going to be able to meet some of their objections. That, that's different. Not because you've been sharing the gospel for so long and there's been no receptiveness. That, that, that's different. This is the person who you, ref- you have never shared the gospel, and frankly, you probably never will. For one reason, you don't think they would ever believe. They are the most unlikely candidate. Why bother? And you think that, you think that for reasons like this. Their lifestyle, perhaps their sexual choices, the way they live, what they believe about biology, there's no way. Why even go there? I'm just going to offend them. Maybe it's their politics. Liberals tend to be atheists. I'm not going to bother sharing Christ with an atheist. I know their political views. Maybe it's just past conversations. You've talked with them about their values and their philosophies of life. Maybe it's their religious upbringing. I I had a, uh, I didn't work with him. He was my boss. He was the owner of the company that I worked with, that I worked for. And he was, in some ways, a great guy. He was, don't mean to stereotype, but he was that brash, loud, arrogant New Yorker. (laughs) He was from New York City. And he was this big personality and big presence. Most people didn't like him because he was loud and boisterous and obnoxious. I love the guy to death. (laughs) He was also Jewish. Now, I'm pretty sure he was just Jewish for the food festivals. He always seemed to be celebrating those. Where's Roy? Well, it's, you know, he can't eat today, so he's staying staying back at home. But we had conversations, sometimes not intentional, but I would, I would hear him talk. 
And it was clear that he did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. It's clear. And the Lord put him on my heart over and over and over again. Invite him to Alpha. I'm not going to waste my time. He's never. I know him. He's never going to believe. You know, it's not our role to size people up. (laughs) I do that. It's not our role to size people up and determine the odds and then act accordingly, which sometimes means walk away if it seems like a waste of time and effort. This person will never, they'll never bow their heart to Jesus. The truth is, those God saves are faceless to us. What I mean by that is we don't know who he will save. We just know there's a sinner in front of us. Tom, there's a sinner in front of me. And I've got the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a person in front of me who just like I did fits the description of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 and Colossians 1, 21 and Romans 5, 8 and 10. I've got the good news of the gospel. I love what John Piper said. He says, God's mercy and power are not limited to people who have been set up for Christianity by a good family or a church association or a clean moral track record. The chief of sinners was converted. He's alluding to Saul. And that means hope in evangelism and in your own faltering walk with the Lord. Is there someone you haven't bothered sharing the gospel with because, frankly, you don't think they would ever believe? In your mind, humanly speaking, they are the most unlikely candidate to bow their heart to Jesus. Let me remind you again, humanly speaking, none of us are likely candidates to live for and be used by God. But, remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? Here's how verse 4 starts. But, but God is infinite in his wisdom and he is sovereign in salvation. He alone has supreme power and supreme Authority for the work of saving people from their sin. You know what that means? That means that no one, not even that one who is in your mind right now, no one is beyond God's saving mercy. There is no zeal, there is no self righteousness, there is no sin, there is no heart hard enough to resist the irresistible saving grace of God when he comes calling. 
maybe even through you. No one. No one. God's saving grace knows no limits. The gospel is unstoppable and knows no boundaries. Not even a bloodthirsty, zealously ruthless Pharisee like Saul. Not even a sinner like you and me. Not even the person whose face you're seeing right now. We've been watching the gospel break barriers. And all this barrier breaking can be tracked to Hebrews 10. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The veil was torn in two. The flesh of Jesus was pierced as he absorbed our sins as a once and for all sacrifice on all for all who would come to him by faith. Listen, if the Lord is convicting you and you are asking, okay, I got someone in my head. What now? I want you to be hopeful. Repent. God is God. You are not. Rehearse your testimony. If you, why not them? Remember the mission. Salvation is for sinners, not saints. Rest in the power of God to save, not your ability to persuade. And see, perhaps, that in the wisdom of God, whose ways are not our ways, that very person may be in my life. That very person may be in your life to remind us of what we can't do and what God alone can do. So that unlikely candidate may very well be an instrument of sanctification in your life. And then finally, reach out, be like Stephen. Open your mouth. Or was that Philip? It was both of them. Open your mouth and trust God with this plan. He knows what he's doing. It's his plan. Leave you with the words of Derek Thomas. Paul was arrested in mid-flight, breathing murderous thoughts. This should give us cause for great hope about those who appear to be utterly indifferent, even hostile toward the gospel. There is no telling what God can do in an instant. Let us open our mouths.
no one is beyond the reach of our Savior.